Good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. And just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. As I just said, we have recently entered into chapter 18. Now, chapter 18 starts out with Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is spending some time with his Father in prayer before his crucifixion. During that time, Judas shows up with over 600 Roman soldiers and temple police, all carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. Verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. This would be the first of two trials that Jesus would endure that morning, the morning of his crucifixion. The first would be a religious trial, and the second would be a civil trial. The first trial took place before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. The second one before Pilate, the Roman governor of the region. If we combine the accounts from all four Gospels, we learn that each trial had three phases to it. The religious trial started when Jesus was arrested and brought to Annas. That's when the officially the religious trial began. Um, only John records that Jesus was brought to Annas first. As we said last week, Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the official high priest appointed by Rome, whereas Annas was recognized by the Jewish people as the rightful and legal high priest because the law of Moses mandated that when a man uh, was installed in the office of high priest, he served for life. But Rome at one point didn't like Annas anymore, so they took him out and put in one of his sons. He had five altogether. When they worked through all five sons, no doubt a bunch of knuckleheads, they uh, Annas bribed somebody to put his son-in-law, Caiaphas, uh, in place as a high priest. Um, and again, John's is the only gospel that tells us that they brought Jesus to Annas first. Annas was really the, it was, uh, the real power before the office of the high priest, he pulled the strings, and so on. The second phase of the religious trial was before Caiaphas and part of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin again being the Jewish high council. So um, some of them met at Caiaphas's house while it was still dark and uh, gave this uh, um, hearing, I guess. Um, so that's the second phase where they determined Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, which was punishable by death. And then the third phase of the religious trial occurred after sunrise uh, that morning, as the full council, the full Sanhedrin, then uh, came together and, uh, and uh, rubber-stamped the decision that the partial Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin had made earlier that Jesus was guilty. Big surprise. 
Well, that was would bring us to the civil trial. Now, the Lord's civil trial also had three phases. The first phase was before Pilate, as you well know. And then the second phase was before Herod, when uh, Pilate, who didn't want to do this, he did not want any part of this trial. When he learned that Jesus was really from up in the Galilee, well, that's Herod's jurisdiction. <laughs> so he drop-kicked the whole thing into Herod's lap. And we see that in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 to 12. And then Herod um, was no help. So Herod brought him back to Pilate, and that was the third and final phase of Jesus' civil trial where Pilate um, had no choice, really. You always have a choice, but politically, uh, Pilate figured he had no choice but to pronounce Jesus guilty. And so he um, authorized his crucifixion. So, guys, that brings us to the religious trial. As we're just kind of uh, sketch out what these trials entailed. But uh, the religious trial of Jesus, uh, we see, first of all, Jesus standing before Annas. Again, verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, guys, at this point, it's still very early in the morning, probably between 3.30 and 4 o'clock. All right. Verse 19, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always met. And in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said, what I taught. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, slapped him right across the face, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, guys, this introduces us to Caiaphas, about whom John makes the statement in verse 14, Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. That statement, guys, was recorded by John in chapter 11, if you want to turn there. This occurred right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And his ministry was really at its peak among the people. And this worried the religious leadership, corrupt as they were, because they figured that all the people were going after Jesus now. His popularity had spiked. And they were afraid that the people would no longer look to them as religious leaders, number one. Number two, they were afraid that Rome would be upset uh, because Rome had its finger on the pulse of everything going on uh, politically in that area. And so they were afraid Rome was going to come upon them, uh, remove them from office, and so on. And so um, they were worried about this. And we read in verse 49, Then one of them, Caiaphas being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. What are you worried about? Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us 
that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he said, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather uh, together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad, scattered through all nations. Now look, if it bothers you that God prophesied through a corrupt character like Caiaphas, and how, would God, how could God do that? That's not even right. God will speak through whomever he wishes to speak through. He will even speak through unbelievers if it suits his purposes. In the Old Testament, right, in Numbers 22, uh, verse 28, he even spoke through a donkey. Now, that doesn't justify the ministry of donkeys, although I stand before you. I just... God can do whatever he wants to do. He's God. Now, Caiaphas, the words he spoke, here's what he said. This guy's a problem. There's no way we're going to let him be such a problem if they come and take our power and destroy the nation. We'll take care of this guy. It's better that one man die than the whole nation perish. That's where he was coming from. But God turns his words against him. And here's what God had him say. Jesus Christ might be a problem to some, but he's the Savior of all. And you kill him, you're playing right into the hands of God. Didn't Paul say, if the rulers of this world had only known that by crucifying Jesus Christ, it was actually going to play into the whole purpose of God, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory, right? Our God makes even the wrath of man to praise him. So, you know what? Man can do his best. Man can shake his defiant little fist in the face of God and do his whatever he tries to do to bring the purposes of God down. Never happened. Never happened. And so God, I think, just to show us these earthly leaders, you know what? They're being controlled by the hands of God. You know, let them say what they will. That goes for our leaders as well. Let them do their worst. God is using it for his divine purposes. And we pray for our leaders. But don't ever worry about your leaders. Like they're going to do something to thwart God's ultimate plans. Never going to happen. One commentator has this to say about Caiaphas. He said, and I quote, Joseph Caiaphas had been appointed high priest in AD 18 by uh, Valerius Gratus, the same Roman prefect who had deposed his father-in-law Annas three years earlier. He remained in office until AD 36 when the Romans removed him. Caiaphas' tenure as high priest was one of the longest in the first century, which reveals his cunning and opportunistic nature that he purposed killing Jesus to, pre to preserve his and the Sanhedrin's power demonstrates his utter ruthlessness, end quote. So again, so uh, uh, Jesus now stands before Caiaphas, verse 23. Jesus answered this Roman that slapped him in the face, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? 
And Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Jesus is now standing before Caiaphas. And guys, that is all that John tells us about the religious portion of Jesus' trial that morning. For a more complete look at what happened, we need to turn now to the Synoptic Gospels. So turn to Matthew chapter 26. And let's look at verse 57 first of all. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled, well, some of them. Verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Mark tells us in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 56, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. As we pointed out last time, this was a total kangaroo court from start to finish. They broke every law God established for providing a fair, a fair trial for someone accused of a crime, especially somebody accused of a capital crime. One glaring violation was that, according to Jewish law, all evidence had to be verified by at least two witnesses, by at least two witnesses, who were separately examined and could not have contact with each other to prevent them from colluding with each other. And their testimonies had to agree. Had to agree. According to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, God said, a thing shall be established in a Jewish court of law. Furthermore, according to Jewish law, if a person gave false testimony, if he committed perjury in a capital offense trial, it was punishable by death. And yet nothing was done to the many false witnesses in Jesus' trial. It sounds like our judicial system. Matthew 26, verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none that agreed, is the idea. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, to Jesus, Do you answer nothing? What is this these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Now guys, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Because in Isaiah 53 verse 7, it was prophesied. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The accusation against Jesus given by false witnesses was, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now guys, that takes us back to something Jesus did which gave rise to something he said uh, near the beginning of his public ministry. Turn to John 2, chapter 2, 
something that Jesus said that they misunderstood back then and used against him right here. John 2, verse 13. And we studied this last week, so I'll just read it to you because I want to get to what Jesus said because that's what they're keying in on, the false witnesses said. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered. Now this will be the Jewish leadership. Every time John uses the word Jews, he's talking about the Jewish religious leadership. Uh, They're ticked off. Why? They made a lot of money from these temple concessions, uh, selling animals uh, to pilgrims coming from afar away that couldn't drag animals with them, making money off of uh, exchanging Roman currency for temple shekels, the only currency they allowed you to pay your temple tax with or to give an offering to God with. So now Jesus turns over the money changer tables, drives the animals out. This was going to hit them hard uh, revenue-wise, hit them in the pocket. You know, uh, you know what? Wicked characters, you know, they'll put up with a lot. You hit them in the wallet, uh, watch out. So they are incensed. They are incensed. And uh, they, they say to him, you know, what sign are you going to give us that you have the authority, basically, to do what you're doing? And Jesus answered them and said, verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You can check out Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, and Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40, to understand what um, is being said here. Guys, let me just say this to you. They misinterpreted completely what Jesus meant when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Of course, we know he was talking about the temple of his body, but they thought he was talking about the physical temple, which they then used to accuse him with. Let me just say this to you. So many people throughout the history of the church, but in our day, I think mostly, We'll read the Bible in general or the words of Christ in particular. And they'll pull something out of context or come to a hasty conclusion, you know, come to a false interpretation, and they'll run with it. And then they got the Bible being this goofy book because look at all the contradictions. Uh, You know, Christianity is uh, is a false religion because of this and that. And uh, you know what? Be careful of people that don't read the Bible but are experts of the Bible or in the Bible, right? Make sure that you know your Bibles well enough that when somebody challenges you, like one uh, well-known 
uh, apologist was at a college, and he said he was talking about the story of you know uh, Jonah and and the great fish, right? And during a questions and answers time, one of the smug little college students raised their hand and said, you know, well, the Bible says that you know uh, that Jonah. Uh, was uh, vomited up onto the shores of Nineveh when Nineveh is inland, I don't know how many miles. And the, and the teacher said, the Bible doesn't say that Jonah was vomited up on the shores of Nineveh. It says he was vomited up on the shore and he walked in Nineveh. He said, we get this all the time. And we go around the country, college campuses, and we're presenting the Bible and we're trying to teach the Bible. So many people have jerked passages out of context. They really don't even know what the passage is teaching. And now the Bible is ridiculous. It's foolish. We should dismiss it. And they don't even know what they're talking about. We've got to know what we're talking about. Matthew 26, verse 63. So Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Guys, the law of Moses required that in a court of law, Jewish court of law, if the judge at one point put you under oath, you were bound by law to testify. You were bound by law to testify. In this case, it was the high priest who did this. Now, as I've said before, let me say it again. This whole thing was a sham. They were not supposed to meet at night. They were meeting at night. Uh, they, they were not supposed to um, cause the criminal, cause the accused, I should say, to testify against themselves. They did that with Jesus. Everything about this trial was, uh, was false. It was a, a joke. But here the high priest puts Jesus under oath. And in respect for the office, not the man, the man was corrupt. But in respect for the office... Jesus goes, he goes ahead and he um, testifies. But let me just say this before we get to that. Uh, Jewish law said that if a man was put under oath by a judge or now the high priest, they were bound by Jewish law to testify. But Jewish law also said, as I just pointed out, it also mandated that a person accused of a crime could not testify against themselves. So they were broken, breaking all kinds of laws. Look again at Matthew 26. Well, the high priest said, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless. Now, as I read that, it doesn't sound like a very forceful defense of himself, Right? Tell us right now, are you, the, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Yeah, like you say. Why was Jesus so kind of a tepid in his defense? Because this whole thing was a sham and he knew it. These men were not interested in finding out the facts. So Jesus was not interested in giving them honest answers. I mean, he gave them an honest answer. He would never lie. But he was not interested in pandering to that. So, you know, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. It is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. That's a reference to God Almighty, Yahweh. 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? Well, we think he should, he's deserving of death. Oh, big surprise. That was the conclusion they had already come to. Look, in Leviticus 24, verse 16, and other places, the law of Moses stated that blasphemy was a capital offense. So here they believe they've got him. He claims to be equal with God. He must be claiming to be God, which he did claim all throughout his public ministry. So now out of his own mouth we have him. He's committed blasphemy, and he's worthy of death. Matthew 26, verse 67, Then they spat in his face. Guys, in that culture, to spit in someone's face was the worst thing you could do to show your utter contempt and disdain for them. They refused to believe he was God. They refused to believe that they were spitting in the face of God, the Lord of glory, God in human form, the one who had created them. Isn't it interesting? Someday they're going to stand before Jesus. Um, but here they're full of self-righteous indignation. And so they spit into the face of the Lord or spit on the face of the Lord of glory. But guys, that wasn't all they did to the one who loved them and was about to give his life for them. We read in Matthew 26, that they, verse 67, they spat in his face and beat him, the Greek is with closed fists, and others struck him with palms, the palms of their hands. So some punched him, others slapped him. To me, that just tells us that some people hate Jesus with a hatred that is just, you know, like a volcano erupting. And others, they disdain him. They don't hate him like some do. They reject him. We live in a culture where some people are kind of ambivalent towards Christ. I don't know who he is. I don't care. Some people are upset with Jesus and Christians because they're kind of impinging. We, uh, the words of Christ are kind of, you know, going against how they want to live their life. They're not happy about it. And then you get some who are, you know, throwing rocks at Christians who are trying to help women uh, not have an abortion or, or something to that effect, you know? Um, and I think the level of hatred for Jesus in our culture is ramping up. And by extension, we're going to be the recipients of much of the anger. They can't get at Jesus, so they're going to get at the ones that belong to Jesus, those whom he loves, and so on. This idea that they, bit, be, they beat him with closed fists. Luke tells us in chapter 22 of his gospel, verse 63, now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, mockingly, Who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. 
I wanted to show you that in Luke's gospel, it says that they blindfolded Jesus before they beat him with their fists. If you can see a punch coming reflexively, the way our bodies are designed, God has built in us a, a reflexive um, property, where if someone is throwing a punch at you, you see it coming, you naturally want to move away from it so that when it hits you, it doesn't hit you full force. If you're blindfolded, you can't see that punch coming, which means it's going to land on your face full blast. Full blast. These men were beating Jesus with closed fists after having blindfolded him. Isaiah tells us they not only beat Jesus, but they also pulled his beard out with their hands. Of course, this beating and the pulling out of his beard with their hands greatly disfigured him. In fact, we read in Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn to it, I'll read it to you at the NLT. We read a prophecy about how when Jesus returns to the earth, how shocked people are going to see when they first see him. Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. See, God the Father says, my servant will prosper it will be highly exalted, yes, when he returns to establish his kingdom. But many will be amazed when they see him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will not for they will not see. For, excuse me. For they will see what they had not been told. Uh, what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. When Jesus returns, what Isaiah is prophesying, he is going to be so badly disfigured that when people see him, they will literally be shocked into silence. We know from John's Gospel, chapter 21, after he arose from the dead and eventually appeared to his disciples up in the Galilee, as they were fishing all night, caught nothing, and then in the morning, here was a man on the shore, had a fire going, and was cooking fish. They, Peter said, it's the Lord. And so he jumps in, swims to the shore. The other guys row the boat. We'll see this in detail when we get there. And John says something very interesting. He said, And none of us dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing it was the Lord. Wow, that sends shivers up my spine. You see, we know after his crucifixion, he bore the marks of his crucifixion. Mary didn't recognize him by the tomb. She thought he was the gardener. The two disciples, too amazed, didn't recognize him until he broke bread. And what? Did they see the nail prints in his hands? Their eyes were opened and then he disappeared. In, in Revelation 5, when John sees him in heaven, he sees him as a lamb, excuse me, as a lamb who had been slain. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that for ages yet to come, we are going to know for all time the riches of his grace toward us, how much he loved us. Because it seems as though 
we are going to forever, as we look at him, see him disfigured because of his beating and crucifixion, all because he loved us and went to the cross willingly to save us. I have said it before, let me say it again. Be prepared. The first time you see the Lord Jesus might be a very shocking experience. But the shock will quickly give way to the awe of his great love for us. Forever, forever more, as we look at him, we're going to know how much he loved us and what he was willing to go through to die that we might be saved. Isaiah 53, verse 2 says, There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Not at first, but it will be. So, his religious trial. First of all, we see him standing before Annas. Secondly, before Caiaphas. And now Jesus stands before the whole council. Turn to Luke 22. Let's start with verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Verse 66. As soon as it was day, or in other words, as soon as the sun had risen, the elders of the people, both chief priests, scribes, came together and led him into their council. Now this would be the official chambers where court was convened, where, court, where cases were tried. You notice they held a hasty, illegal meeting earlier at night in Caiaphas's house when it was supposed to be in the council. They waited now till the sun rose because trials were not to be conducted until the sun came up. They, they convened the whole council, all the Sanhedrin, met now in the official council chambers. They give this whole kangaroo court some semblance of being righteous. Now at this point, I'd like to read to you one author's comments about justice and jurisprudence in Israel. And they did have quite a system. Evil men can corrupt a good system. God gave them a very good system. One historian says, and I quote, The Jewish people of Jesus' day were justly proud of their system of jurisprudence, which was the most carefully constructed one in existence. It was in many respects even superior to our own current justice system. Oh, amen to that. Since God is a God of truth, truth was, the, was central to Israel's system of justice. From the very outset, God stressed to Israel how essential it was that all judges be focused on the pursuit of truth. When they were about to enter into the promised land and be established as a nation, God commanded them in Deuteronomy chapter 16. He said, and I quote, You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The author goes on, By the time of Christ, Israel's judicial system had become well established. Every town with at least 120 men were head, uh, who were heads of households had a local court known as the Sanhedrin. 
The great Sanhedrin was in Jerusalem, and it was the final judicial authority in Israel comparable uh, to the Supreme Court of the United States. It consisted of 70 men from three categories, chief priests, mostly Sadducees, elders, which were religious and secular aristocrats, and then thirdly, scribes, mostly Pharisees. The law mandated three requirements in a criminal proceeding. It had to be a public trial. Well, Jesus was, initially they tried him um, privately. Uh, A defense for the accused had to be provided. Jesus had no legal um, representation. And number three, um, and number three, a confirmation of guilt by two or three witnesses was required. The witnesses had to agree. There had to be at least two or three that agreed. And we saw how that that wasn't the case. Because the last point was crucial to to a just verdict, the law prescribed a severe penalty for false witnesses. The punishment that the accused would be, uh, that the accused would be, I'm sorry, the punishment that the accused would have received if he had been guilty was to be inflicted on the liars. I find this incredibly just and wise. So you've got a guy being falsely accused by someone of a crime. And they pay somebody, somebody pays somebody to offer false testimony that yes, he is in fact guilty. If they found out in Israel that you uh, were perjuring yourself, you had maybe taken a bribe and were providing false testimony, you got the sentence that you tried to get this guy to have. And so if it was a capital crime, the punishment was death. You perjured yourself in a capital case and they found out you were lying, they killed you. And you can read about this in Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 to 19. Back in Luke 22, verse 66, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. Now, this is the second time they're going to, they have to make this official. At Caiaphas' house, they asked the same question. They came to the same conclusion. But now, this is official of an official proceeding. So now they got to ask him the same question, get the same verdict, uh, the same conclusion, hopefully render the same verdict. So here we go. If you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you you will by no means believe me. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you then the Son of God? He said, so he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now, guys, going through the motions as if this was a fair and impartial trial, they asked Jesus again, If you are the Christ, tell us. Before he answers, Jesus replies to them, If I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you any questions, you're not going to answer me. Because the accused had a right to to, uh, cross-examine his accusers. He had a right to, to challenge them. And Jesus said, look, this is not about justice. This is about you finding anything you can pin on me to accuse me of. 
And of course, we know Jesus was no doubt thinking, but this is all according to the plan of God. You don't realize that your evil intentions are actually fulfilling the purposes and plans of God for the redemption of the entire world. Jesus made it clear that the Sanhedrin was not concerned about the evidence, about fairness, truth, or justice. We know he told the truth, as Jesus always told the truth. His claim to be the Son of God was, in fact, the truth. We know that. So he simply reaffirmed his identity by declaring, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God until he comes. And he quotes, really, he's quoting a messianic psalm. They knew this psalm was messianic. Jesus basically just quotes it. Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord God the Father said to my Lord, right, uh, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus ascended back to the Father, sat down at the Father's right hand, and someday is coming back in power to establish his kingdom. And of course, at that point, they said, we don't need witnesses anymore. He has, you know, we've heard the blasphemy uh, from his own mouth with our own ears. What do you say? He's guilty. Um, he needs to be put to death. So Mark 15, verse 1, Immediately in the morning, when the sun had risen, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Now guys, as the religious portion of Jesus' trial came to an end, the scene now shifts to Pilate's courtroom and to the civil portion of Jesus' trial. Now this morning, we spent a lot of time looking at the historical narrative. And it's important that we look at the historical facts. I realize some of you folks are not really big into history. I like history. I know a lot of folks, they skip over the history in the Old Testament because history does not really, you know, get them, you know, that interested. Please don't do that. You have to know the historical context to understand what's being said, presented, taught right by the holy spirit so this morning we've spent a lot of time looking at the historical narrative of what went on that morning the morning of jesus crucifixion for the remainder of our time i don't want to let you go with just a history lesson so for the remainder of our time i would like to try to make some practical applications from what we've learned about for our own lives and for that we need to turn to first peter chapter 2 And let's end with something Peter admonished Christians using Jesus' example of how he handled being unrighteously treated the morning of his crucifixion. 1 Peter chapter 2. And the context is slaves and how, you, how they were to relate, Christian slaves, and how they were relate to their unbelieving masters or owners. But it can apply to any context, whether it's your job, uh, whether it's just being accused of something wrong, uh, wrongfully and so on, how we handle it as Christians, right? Uh, so, verse Peter 2, verse 18. Peter says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, 
For what credit is it if you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? In other words, you know, if you're accused of something and you didn't do it and you take it patiently, that's precious in God's sight. If you're accused of something you did do and you take it patiently, big deal. But when you do good and suffer you will, and take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Uh, guys, this, for most Christians, I believe, has to be one of the most, if not the most difficult thing to obey of all God has commanded us. And yet we need to understand that our light will never shine brighter for the world to see that we are children of God than when we act like Jesus in this regard. Act like Jesus, how? Well, verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Unlike all of us, okay, if Jesus could be silent, the absolutely righteous one, I mean, you and I, I think we can be silent too because we're not like Jesus in that regard. But he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And of course, Peter is reminding us of what the Gospels tell us happened the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. How that Jesus allowed himself to be falsely accused by the Jewish leadership, beaten, mocked, and then scourged by the Roman soldiers and finally crucified, all without offering any defense or opening his mouth to denounce those who were lying about him and mistreating him, even to the point of asking the Father, praying to the Father, that the Father would forgive them as Jesus hung on the cross. And with that fact in mind, Peter then turns to us and says in verse 21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. As I said, guys, this is one of the most difficult things for us to obey, keeping quiet when we are being falsely accused of some wrongdoing. And the reason it's so hard for us is because we've grown up in a country that prides itself on upholding and protecting the rights of its citizens. This is what we've grown up with in America. And because of it, Americans are very protective of those rights. So much so that when whenever we're pushed around or our rights are violated in any way, we rise up and say, I know my rights. You can't do that to me, right? Uh, I'll sue. I'll organize a protest. I'll do this and I'll do that. Right? And then we get saved. And then we get saved. And now God commands us to follow Jesus' example, which goes against everything we're accustomed to, all the rights we've grown up with and gotten used to as Americans. And again, this is has to be one of those things that it's just, well, it's, it's a supernatural thing to be able to do this. You've got to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, all right? Because it goes totally against our human nature. But I'll say this to you. This is one of those things that I've seen over the years that most Christians don't do when they are wrong. They don't let it go. They don't commit it to God and leave it alone. No, they tend to want to retaliate 
and try to get even. And that's because they're often thinking more like Americans than they are like Christians. Primarily because the one is rooted in pride, which appeals to our flesh and makes us feel good and empowered when we stand up for our rights. While the other is rooted in humility and demands that we die to self, which doesn't feel good or empowering at all. In America today, the way most people deal with those who have wronged them is to take them to court and sue, which is why America is the most litigious nation in the world. And understand that this isn't limited to unbelievers. Christians are often no better when it comes to dragging people into court, oftentimes dragging other Christians into court. Let me read to you, because we're just about out of time, but let me just, you have to turn to it. Let me read you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. And let me start with verse 7 and then read verse 6. Now, because the Corinthians were dragging each other into court. And Paul said, Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to court against one another. Why don't you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? But brother goes to law, goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, guys, I want to make one thing clear. Paul isn't forbidding Christians from using secular courts at all. Certainly, there are times when Christians are going to need to take unbelievers and even secular companies uh, that have wronged them to court. Sometimes a Christian will even have to take another Christian to court. I've heard of uh, stories where Christian couple breaks up, they have a child, and the one parent wants to keep the other parent from seeing the child, and so they have to take the one to court to get their rights to see their child or their children. That's sacred to God. Uh, God ordained that two parents raise a child, and God does not want one parent unless they're uh, criminals and uh, have abused the child. Uh, but uh, God wants both parents to have access to those kids. So you may have to do, do in that. There are churches that have uh, done some things to people that were just absolutely egregious, uh, unlawful, and uh, a crime. And so people have had to sue churches. I'm not going to get into all the details. You can figure them out. But the issue that Paul is raising here is that Christians ought to as much as is possible, try really hard, as much as possible, to handle civil matters between themselves, you know, in the church. Now, this works much better when there is only one Christian church in town, as there was in Paul's day, and both parties that are at odds with each other both go to the same church. Works a lot better. Today, we don't have that, right? But in Corinth, whereas all the Christians did go to the same church, for the most part, believers were not interested in showing mercy and grace and love to each other in the name of Jesus so as to be witnesses to the unbelievers they were living among in town. No, they were only interested in using the, the secular courts to get what they felt were their right, selfishly maintaining that they wanted their rights. It was all about getting their rights. And I know maybe some of you are thinking, so what then? What do I do when somebody cheats me? Just 
Forget it? I mean, that's not fair. I got rights. Look, when I became a Christian, I gave up my personal rights. I gave up my personal rights when I submitted myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and became his slave. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You do no longer belong to yourself. You were bought at a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you are to honor God with your body and with your spirit, which belong to him now. We don't have any more rights. Whatever Jesus tells us to do, that we are to do. Even if it goes against our so-called rights as Americans. As one pastor said, and I quote, Paul is saying here, the minute you go to secular courts, nobody wins. The whole church loses. It loses its witness, and you lose the opportunity to learn humility by dying to self instead of demanding your rights. Even if, even if you win, you've lost because you have placed personal gain above your witness to the world. Why don't you just accept that you've been cheated and leave it at that for the sake of God's glory? He will honor you and he will take care of you, end quote. Listen, guys, and we're done, but let me just say this. For Paul, the greater issue wasn't, you know, who was right and who was wrong in a court of law, in a civil manner, matter, so that proper justice would be administered. Paul wasn't an attorney. He was an apostle, a leader in the church. And as such, he was far more concerned about our witness to the world than he was about our, our civil rights. He was more concerned that we properly represented Jesus to the world. And if we were wronged in some way, as somebody told me um, after first service, they were greatly cheated out of something. I'll tell you my story in a second. And by family members, got a lawyer, but eventually said, you know what, let's forget it. The lawyer who was an unbeliever, she was really taken back. Because here's a guy that wasn't demanding his rights. And that was for Paul. Paul wanted Christians to be a witness he wanted them to demonstrate Jesus' sacrificial love and character to a lost world. Look, guys, today too many Christians are consumed with their rights to the point where it seems that nothing else matters to them. And so they sue those who have wronged them, even fellow Christians. And all of it taking place before unbelievers. Again, guys, in the eyes of God, my witness and his glory are far more important than any personal compensation I can get from suing another Christian. I'll end with this. About 20 years or so ago, um, I was cheated out of an inheritance. My grandfather passed away, and some family members had positioned themselves in such a degree that they cheated uh, me, in fact, my whole, all my siblings, out of our portion of my grandfather's inheritance. It was quite a bit of money. Uh, in those days, it would have really helped us financially. And, and I was hurt. I was furious, you know. And you know how you fall into the flesh so easily. I like to tell you I was so spirit-filled in those days that I just kind of glowed a little bit and said, you know, that's okay, you know. No, I got angry. I checked in to suing them, you know, taking them to court. I have my rights. 
But God kept me from going through with it. And I'm glad he did because I have come to realize that my witness is far more important to me than the money and my love for my family members, even if they have wronged me and cheated me, supersedes any resentment I might have felt from not getting what I deserved. I forgave them. I moved on. And God always, he took care of us. He always has. Always has. In fact, the brother that told me that story at the first service, God spoke to him and said, haven't I always taken care of you? That you've got to sue your family. Let it go. Let it go. I'll take care of you. And he sure did. So again, the words of Peter, verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. The one who was wrongfully accused, wrongfully charged, he opened not his mouth and said, Father, I give it to you, and just loved us and went to the cross for us. May God give us the grace that we need to go to the cross, not literally, but figuratively, for those around us, no matter how much they tr- badly they treat us. May God give us the grace. Father, we thank you for our Savior and his example. How fall I know I how often and how far short I know I often fall in not measuring up to Jesus' character in a given situation. Forgive me, forgive all of us, Lord, for getting into the flesh when wronged and for wanting to retaliate. Lord, give us grace. We need your grace. We can't do it in our own strength. Give us grace, Lord, that we might be so filled with the Holy Spirit that we just give it to you and move on. Pray for them, love them, and not to get sucked into all the animosity and even hate. It's not worth it. Our rewards are in heaven. We thank you. And we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.